After upper limb amputation, employment opportunities may be limited. Given the dramatic shift in the job market in the United States in recent years, there's a need to examine the updated employment rates and the types of occupations to which individuals with amputation can return. Hi everyone, I'd like to welcome you to Episode 8 of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guest today is Dr. Deanna Gates, PhD, who is an Associate Professor of Movement Science, Biomedical Engineering, and Robotics at the University of Michigan. Dr. Gates earned her bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Virginia, her master's degree in biomedical engineering from Boston University, and her PhD in biomedical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Gates worked in engineering consulting and in civilian and military clinical gate laboratories before arriving at the University of Michigan in 2012. The goal of her research program is to improve function and quality of life in individuals with musculoskeletal impairments. Dr. Gates' lab focuses on understanding how individuals adapt their neuromechanics in response to assistive technology. Her research explores the factors that relate to a person's ability to successfully use assistive devices, how to train individuals for optimal use, and the development of appropriate outcome measures to assess success of new technology. She is also an associate editor of the IEEE Transactions on Neural Engineering and Rehabilitation and a consulting editor for the Journal of Biomechanics. Today, we will be discussing a recent article that Deanna published in JPO entitled, Employment Status in Individuals with Upper Limb Amputation, A Survey of Current Trends. Welcome to the podcast, Deanna. Thanks for having me. Well, you have a very interesting article here, and I'd like to start out with discussing the topic. Why does this topic interest you? Yeah, we're interested in employment in the context of a broader study that we were doing, looking at whether people with upper limb amputation would be interested in uh, novel control strategies for their prosthesis. So whether they'd have surgical interventions in order to improve their control. And when we were talking with the clinicians about this, uh, there was an interest in maybe like, are they interested in this from an employment perspective? And then kind of what are the factors are affecting whether they're employed um, after amputation. And then it sort of became a separate question for us. So within the same survey, we kind of uh, delved a little bit more into those employment factors. And in particular, our prosthetist or uh, one of the clinicians was really interested in knowing whether the dominant limb, whether they had a non-dominant or a dominant limb was actually related to uh, their employment and then how to advise patients in, in seeking employment. So you alluded to the research question there. So what was the purpose of this particular study? So we were looking at the employment status, so how many people have are employed um, after their amputation um, and whether they needed to change the jobs that they had as a result of their amputation. Um, so this is something that people have explored in the past, but it's been done in, in a variety of different countries that have different employment opportunities, different ways of describing their unemployment rates, and really over an extended period of time, but um, none of them were very recent. So, you know, in 15 years, the job markets have changed pretty dramatically. So what we're trying to look at the United States in particular, and then also giving more updated rates. And so what were your hypotheses or expectations going into this study? 
Yeah, so we looked at a variety of different factors that we thought might relate based on previous literature, and then others that just sort of intuitively came to our mind as, as things that, that could be interesting to explore, like their dominant, non-dominant limb, how much they use their prosthesis, the type of pain they're in, um, and then educational attainment. And so would you please d- describe the experimental protocol for your study? Yeah, so this was an online anonymous survey. Um, So we had done broad advertisements. We got into Facebook groups. We posted in the Amputee Coalition's In Motion magazine. So trying to cast a really broad net, we also sent them to clinicians all over the country to try to engage their patients. But the survey itself was all online and asked questions about their employment and also their interest in these invasive control approaches to OCCs. And so what were the inclusion exclusion criteria for your research participants? Yeah, so this was really broad. Um, We were hoping to cast a pretty wide net. So they really only needed to be over the age of 18 um, and have an upper limb amputation that was at or above the wrist. So we didn't include any like partial hand. Both unilateral and bilateral? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so what were the demographics of your research subjects in the end? Yeah, so they were a wide mix of people with upper limb loss. In in some cases, many had uh, lower limb loss as well. We ended up excluding those just to focus on on the factors that might affect people with upper limb loss in isolation. Obviously, the lower limb may also affect their employment, and we couldn't really tease that out. So we looked specifically at just having an upper limb amputation. They had bilateral, unilateral, a mix of different levels of amputation. The the age range was was quite broad, but the average age was about 42. And then they had a range of causes of amputation as well um, in terms of some congenital and and mostly acquired. And how many subjects did you end up enrolling? So we ended up after excluding a lot of mostly empty surveys. So people click on the survey and then don't actually answer any of the questions. 222, I believe. And then we excluded further from that. So there were two categories that we looked at. One was what what their employment status was at the time of surgery and the time of the amputation. And the other was the return to work question. And so for those two groupings, we had a different number. So there was 199 respondents for the employment status question and 160 for the job switch question. It's a good number of subjects uh, Mm -hmm. for a survey. Uh, Just curious, how long was your survey active? It was active for about a year. And did you get uh, responses from all over the United States or all over the world, or how did they come in? Yeah, so we um, targeted those within the United States, but we don't actually know where they're responding from. So that was because it was an anonymous survey, we didn't collect information about their their IP address. Um, And so the only way we would know is if they responded, they wanted a $10 incentive fee, which not everyone did. But those that we sent uh, money to, we can tell that all of those were in the United States. Okay, what were the primary findings from your survey? The biggest thing of interest is that employment is still an issue. Um, and so we had a, a rather significant number of people who were not employed. And about a quarter of those reported the need to switch jobs as a result of their amputation. About 39% that were unemployed is larger than the national average by a significant amount. With the sort of caveat that the definition of unemployment is different. So in the uh, in the United States, the way that it's defined is people who are actively seeking work. And from the questions that we asked, we can't determine whether that was actually true of these individuals or not. Yeah, you actually cited some data as part of the background for your uh, your study that that I found a little distressing. 
You cited a study in 2011 that reported that 92% of individuals had difficulty finding employment after upper limb amputation. And initially, I thought this sounded like discrimination. And I was thinking, you know, here we are in the United States trying to be progressive. We have the uh, uh, the ADA to uh, to try to equalize uh, employment opportunities for people with disability. You went on to cite another study from 2016 that reported 67 percent of individuals with acquired upper limb amputation were employed in mentally demanding jobs rather than physically demanding jobs. Uh, the results from your study in particular indicated that about 40% of participants were not employed at the time of the survey, and 29% reported needing to change jobs because of their amputation. So after kind of gathering all the information and thinking about it a little bit, I guess I'm wondering if individuals with upper limb amputation have difficulty finding employment because of functional limitations in their prostheses, coupled with inadequate workplace accommodations. So what do you think about all of those uh, those data and kind of my conclusions about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's largely true. And there have been studies that specifically focused on kind of like how the, the workplace accommodates them. So um, people have complained that they, they don't have good accommodations or that they may choose to stay in a particular job if they could properly be accommodated. But since they can't, they'll retire early. Some of those are not quite as large as subject numbers. It's hard to sort of extrapolate, and particularly the one study with the 91%, that's only 12 individuals. And so it's really hard to, to kind of say that that those things apply, apply more broadly. But with in our own data, what was, what was a little bit difficult was not everyone gave great detail about what type of occupation they had. Like we had some people who wrote worker. <laughs> I don't know what, what that means exactly. And so that's why we had to create this sort of other category of, of what does this mean? But we, I went through and looked at, you know, so what kind of comes up more consistently. Um, and, and one is an interesting one is a mechanic. So a mechanic, if you can think about, has to use their hands quite a lot um, in order to manipulate things. And it can be a job that's really hard to make accommodations for. And every single person that we have in the mechanic category is unemployed after um, their amputation, except for one who then went into, it says a part-time position in security. And so it would be a position where they, they maybe don't necessarily need to use their hands or have extreme dexterity to do it. It's a little bit hard to tease out with the types of categories that we have, but I think that it's definitely true that there are challenging positions to go back to. Well, and it makes me think that a lot of these positions that they go back to, particularly that requires manual dexterity, maybe they need specialized prosthetic components to enable them to return to those types of positions. Right. And so it wouldn't involve their everyday upper limb prostheses. Right. Yeah. And so we do know the types of prostheses that people had. And so they did report that, but it was a little bit hard to, again, determine the, the frequency. So they said they would have something that's more activity specific, but we went with whatever their sort of primary prosthesis was. And I think that's kind of a limitation here is we can't say whether that activity specific prosthesis was used for work or whether it was used for, say, swimming or some you know other activity. So were there any unanticipated surprises in your findings? And if so, can you explain them? Yeah, I think one of the things that was interesting was the, the dominance that our clinician was really expecting to matter didn't come out in either of our analyses. So it didn't relate to whether they returned to work and it didn't relate to their employment status. So whether your dominant limb is the one that's amputated. 
And so that was a little bit surprising to us. So we thought that, especially in these manual dexterity tasks, that it would, our types of positions, that that would really matter. And it, it seemed to to not, not be a primary driver, at least. I think some of the other things we thought might come out didn't have the same weight as, say, education. So that was an interesting finding here that that the educational attainment was really the the most predictive factor of whether someone returned to work. Maybe that's not so surprising after the fact, but but you think about this as being, hey, this is a this is where this population specifically is affected. So what is it about them? But this is more of a broad thing as well that education affects the type of position. Did you encounter any notable problems in the course of your study? And what would you have done differently? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest issue was sort of the the inconsistent detail in, in which people wrote about their positions. And so we had chosen to, to give them this preform uh, response box so that we could get like more detailed information about their jobs. But that really left it up to the person to give more specifics. And in some cases, they were very much more specific. In some cases, they definitely weren't. And so trying to then categorize those things was was really difficult. And that limited the type of classification scheme that we could use. So we went through a whole bunch of them and, and chose this one because it had these broad categories that we could roughly use. And so I think if I was going to do this differently, I would have had checkboxes instead, where they just pick the category and then maybe fill in more details at the bottom. It was also noted by a couple of the participants in the freeform comments at the end that there were too many places to write for someone with an upper limb amputation. So I think that was another thing that where the checkboxes would have helped if people have issues with typing, that they're less inclined to give a lot of information in freeform boxes. You've kind of touched on some things that you would have done differently in kind of informing future research activities in this area. So do you have other recommendations for future research directions? based on your findings. Yeah, I think I think what these really highlight is that this issue is this is still an issue in the field and that's something that we need to to continue looking at and looking at why this problem exists, why they're having difficulties finding employment and then what is it that can be done. I think this points to a few things in the field so in, from a clinician perspective, can you look at this and say how would I help a patient? I think you know, this points to you can encourage the educational component of it. We also saw that the prosthesis use helped with rising employment rates. And so if they use their prosthesis more, that may help them maintain the employment, but it doesn't tease out that nuance. And I think that that is what I would do in, in the future studies is to do some of the things that have been done in the past that, that maybe need some updating is these uh, more focus groups about what are the challenges that that people experience specifically that have hindered them from, from going back. And so what are the main clinical takeaways for the sake of the practitioners who are listening to this podcast? Yeah. So I think that would, that would be it to be aware that the, uh, that employment and finding employment can be an issue for their patients and one that they may want to rise in their meetings with them. So how, what challenges are they having and and how could they address those through training? And then they can also, like, like I said, encourage educational or trainings for their patients and encourage prosthesis use. So however that is, finding a better prosthesis, encouraging them to wear it more hours a day or helping to improve their dexterity with it, that would seem to be beneficial. And something I always like to ask uh, our authors is, uh, did you happen to receive any funding to conduct this study? Yeah, so this was funded um, as part of the DARPA Haptics program to look at the, the interest in invasive neural approaches. 
And so that, that funded the survey development, which then led to our ability to answer this sort of secondary question. Okay. And you also mentioned along the way that this was part of a larger study uh, that you were conducting. Have you published any aspects of the larger study up to this point? So we have three papers that look at patient interest in uh, novel prosthetic approaches. That's uh, it's an, uh, my student, former student, Susanna Engdahl. She also explored the factors that were associated with their interest. So that also led to interesting things about employment and uh, device use and things like that. So how often you use your device, you're more interested in trying these other approaches to enhance your performance. And then we did a focus group study on that particular survey to look at the, the factors associated with whether they would choose these invasive approaches. So that one is um, a Zhang paper in disability and rehabilitation. So now that we've come to the end of the podcast, I'd like to thank Dr. Gage for sharing her insights and discussing her research with us here today. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on her project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's ONP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article.